Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Quick recap of Romans 1 through 4 as we kind of bring this first section of the book to uh, its conclusion. So, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, is Paul's kind of preliminary, his stating of his thesis, his preliminary declaration of his gospel, the gospel that he preaches, the gospel that he wants to communicate to the church in Rome in this letter, right? That God saves sinners by his power when they trust in him. You don't earn your salvation uh, with good works. You receive it by God's grace, by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. That's 16 through 17. The rest of chapter 1, he starts to go about proving and establishing that thesis. And so uh, the rest of chapter 1 is showing that Gentiles and non-religious people uh, are under sin and in need of the grace of God. They need to trust in in God. They're accountable to God by virtue of being a a person that was created in his image, living in a world that he created. Romans 2, he kind of shifts the attention from Gentiles and non-religious people to Jewish people, religious people, you know, think today, people who grew up in a Christian household kind of thing, and, and says to them, basically, you need to be saved too, you need to trust in Christ too, right? Being in close proximity to God, or being in proximity to the people of God, or knowing the law is not uh, enough. You actually have to obey the law and keep the law, and when you don't, that kind of puts you in a position of needing uh, God's grace as well. So by the time we get to Romans 3, Paul has established that all of humanity is under sin, all of humanity needs God's grace, all of humanity is going to stand before God, mouth silenced, accountable to him, giving an account to who they are and what they've done, and their only hope in that moment will be to cast themselves upon the mercy of God, to trust in Jesus and hope that Jesus will will save them. That's Romans 1 through 3. Now, get to Romans 4, and Paul's thinking, I, I, in case you need more proof, in case you know, I've, I've made a, a pretty solid case thus far, but if you need a case study, if you need me to show you by example, let's look at the life of Abraham. And so he shows that Abraham, uh, the most righteous man that any Jewish person could conceive of, right? If you're a Jew in, in ancient Israel, then you, you know, look, uh, you know, look back to your forefathers as the heroes of the faith. And Abraham was, was the, the top of Mount Rushmore for that. He was the guy, the father of the faith. And Paul says, Abraham wasn't saved by works. So if he couldn't have been saved by works, then you can't. If he needed God's grace, if he trusted in God, then you have to as well. And he establishes that, that Abraham believed God and God credited his righteousness to Abraham as a result of Abraham trusting in the mercy of, of God. That's what we saw last week. And we're going to see the second half of that kind of argument, that, that, that kind of uh, example uh, here in, in the latter, the second half of Romans chapter 4. So let's read it and pray, and then, uh, and, then, and then take a few minutes just pondering it together. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of, of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But 
the words that was counted to him were not only written for his sake alone, but were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and who was raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious reality, right? That, that, that justification is by faith. It is freely enjoyed because of your grace when we trust in you. Lord, I pray that uh, we could spend these next few moments dwelling on that reality and, and rejoicing in it and responding rightly to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. We'll pick up in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. It says, For the promise of Abraham, or for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When God called Abraham out of his former way of life uh, in, in, Roman, or in, in Genesis chapter 12, right? When he said that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation and give all of these uh, blessings to him and bless the world through him, uh, Paul is saying that God would, didn't do that because Abraham had been this uh, immaculate, fastidious, uh, you know, keeper of and obeyer of the law of God. He couldn't have been because the law of God didn't exist yet. The law of God came hundreds of years later with Moses at Sinai, and so Abraham was just a guy. He was just a, a Gentile, right? And he was just a regular guy living in a Gentile nation, and God calls him out and calls him to be the, the father of the people of God. And so Paul is saying that call happened because of a promise from God, not because of obedience to the law on the part of, of Abraham. So he's established already, right, uh, verses maybe 1 through 8, uh, Paul says that Abraham was not justified because of his works. Uh, verses 9 through 12, he says Abraham was not justified because of his circumcision or his, his you know, religious uh, rituals and, and observances. And now he's saying Abraham was not saved by, by the law, right? Paul is kind of just one, one example after another saying that, that Abraham's only hope for justification before a holy God was God's grace and faith. It, 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 Abraham was not saved by works. He was not justified by works. He was justified by faith which comports with what we saw back in uh, Romans 3, verse 20. If you look at three, chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Abraham fits that, that paradigm. Paul is agreeing with himself. There's continuity across. Same thing in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Right? So we've believed in Jesus in order that we might be justified by faith and not by works because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Ephesians chapter 2, kind of one of the classic verses that you may, may sound familiar, you may have memorized, right? Uh, for it's by grace that you've been saved and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Over and over and over, we see repeated this idea that justification is by faith. Everyone seems to agree. So let's wrap up. Let's go get some lunch and, and watch, watch football. Ah, see, that was a fake. I faked you. Uh, so someone flip to James chapter 2, verse 24, and, and read that aloud for us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite someone to, to read it. I sang this morning, so now you guys can help me with this part. Someone read James 2.24. Wait, what? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We've just had this huge pile of verses that were justified not by works, but by faith alone. And here's James saying the, literally the exact opposite uh, thing. So what do, we, what do we do with that? How do, we, how, do we, how do we reconcile these verses that seem to be, you know, in, in contradiction with one another or seem to, to you know, be difficult to, to kind of hold together, right? Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 
we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. James, we are justified not by faith alone, but by works. And to make matters worse, James chapter 2, if we were to read uh, the whole entire context of that verse, he's talking about Abraham. So James is using Abraham as an example of why uh, justification is by faith and works, whereas Paul is using the same Abraham as an example of why justification is by faith alone and not works. Now, I would submit to you that the the, the best way to understand and to reconcile these, right, uh, one, one way that I would not try to deal with these passages is to pit one over the other or just write the Bible off entirely. Clearly it can't be right because it can't agree with itself internally. Instead, I would submit that reconciling these two passages has everything to do with, well, we have to define our terms. We have to define our terms and so that we can kind of have clarity and not speak past each other. We need to make sure that Paul and James don't speak past each other and people that are big fans of Paul don't speak past people that are big fans of, of James. And I think it all comes down to the definition of the word justify, which is, which is littered throughout all of these passages that we have, have said, right? We're either justified by works and not by faith alone or we are justified by faith apart from the works of the, the law. Justify... That Greek word is uh, dikau. Um, so justify, can ha- it kind of has an, uh, an interesting and a broader uh, semantic range than we might necessarily give it credit for uh, initially. And so, Galatians 2, Romans 3, and Romans 4, uh, Paul is using the word justify to mean to be declared righteous before God, Right? It's a, it's a legal term. It's, a, it's, a, it's dealing with what is actually true of you, right? A, a defendant standing on trial. The witnesses have all been heard. The judge renders a verdict. Not guilty. You have been justified. You have been legally, objectively, a true statement has been made about you. You've been declared righteous. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It, you, the, the fact of the matter is, you're justified. You're not guilty. No punishment. You're free to go. That's how Paul uses justify. You're justified in that sense, a legal, forensic declaration of what is true. It cannot be altered. In that sense, we are justified by faith apart from works. Works have nothing to do with that sense of justification. But justify can also mean, semantic range can also include to show one, to, to exhibit or show oneself to be righteous, right? To, to, be, to be seen as righteous by someone else, right? That's how you're justified in their sight. So, so that kind of portion of the word justified semantic range has less to do with objectively what is true, but more rather subjectively what does someone think about. Imagine that you're having an argument with someone. You're arguing over who won the Super Bowl in, uh, oh gosh, I got to, all right, 1998. That one's burned into my brain. So uh, you're arguing about who won the Super Bowl in 1998. And you say it was the Denver Broncos because it was John Elway and it was a comeback and it was the end of his career. And they say, no, it was the Green Bay Packers. And, it's, and you don't know. And since we're in the 21st century, you can just break out your phone and Google it. Wikipedia says it was the Broncos. So, so you're, you're right. You are justified. That that person that you were arguing with has now come to see and admit and declare and acknowledge that you are in the right. You are justified in their eyes. You're, you're vindicated. You've been proven right. You've been shown. It's been, it's been shown clearly that you are right. You were already right. You've been right the whole time. But now they see and understand that you are, are right. So in that sense, you've been justified in their in their eyes. And so that's how James uses the word justify. Paul uses justify to mean a legal declaration of what is true regardless of what anyone thinks. That's by faith alone. James uses justify to say to be justified in the eyes of another person, to be seen as right, for, to make them acknowledge that you've been right the whole time, which you were, but now they finally come to see it. That's the sense that James uses justify. And so James is saying a person is shown to be a true believer before the watching world 
not by faith alone, because you can't see faith alone, right? No, no one can see what the inner workings are of my heart. So the way that, that I as a believer can be shown and, and justified in the eyes of those around me is by, my works are what give evidence to and show, right? Your works show what's in your heart. And so we are justified, declared righteous by God because of our faith, but we're justified, seen as believers, right? We, we are, the, the world comes to see and acknowledge that we are believers because of our faith. Paul, James says, you want to, you know, uh, like I will show you my faith by my, by my works. And so what, what might at first look like a contradiction is more just complementary truths that declare the same thing, which is sinful man reconciled to God by grace as he declares them righteous. He justifies them through faith in Christ. And then they have a new life and a new heart and the Holy Spirit comes into their heart and they begin to live a new life of godliness. And then that new life of godliness shows everyone around them Something's different about that person. They love Jesus. I think that they, and then they're, they're justified by their works in, in the eyes of those people uh, around them. So Paul and James, they're buddies, right? They're not, they're not uh, at odds with one another uh, at all. But reading all of this in Romans 3 and 4 about works versus faith might, for someone who's been reading James, make some alarm bells go off. And so I just wanted to take a minute and, and just talk about that together. We're justified by faith. And then that faith is displayed through our works. Verse 14. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. So Paul says, justification by faith, being saved by faith alone, that, that, can, only be, that can only happen if justification by works is totally and entirely abrogated, right? Excluded entirely. Justification by faith only makes sense if it's not possible to be saved by obedience to the law. Because if you could be saved by your obedience to the law, then just do that. That's better. Go ahead and wait. If you could be saved by your obedience to the law, then it's better for God because he doesn't have to send his son to die on the cross for you, right? I'm a father. No one wants to see something bad happen to their son. And so if you could be saved by faith, if you could be saved by obedience to the law, do God a favor and do it so he doesn't have to have his own son die on the cross. Do Jesus a favor so he doesn't have to leave his throne in heaven and come to earth and die on the cross for you as a sacrifice. Do yourself a favor, right? You don't have to do the hard work of humbling yourself and, and trusting. In, you don't have to acknowledge that you're not righteous and, and trust in a Savior that's not yourself and, and lose all of the autonomy and all of the personal sovereignty that came with that self-sufficiency. So if you can be justified by your obedience to the law, then do it. It's better. But if you can't, if it is in fact impossible to be justified by your obedience to the law, then then faith is our only option, right? right? Justification by faith and justification by obedience to the law are entirely at odds. They, they cannot coexist. If, one, if, if, the, if adherence to the law can be justified, then faith is null. The promise is, is void. God might as well have not even done uh, anything to save. I mean, uh, Paul, in, in Galatians 2.21, Paul says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? Faith is null. The promise is void. If you don't need the righteousness of Jesus to, to help you stand before God and be accepted by him, if your own personal internal righteousness is enough to save you, then Jesus died for no reason at all. The faith is null. The promise is void. But the reality is we cannot stand before God on the basis of our own obedience to his law. And so we need God's promise and we need to have faith. And here's why, verse 15, because the law was never intended to save in the first place, right? If, if, if the adherents of the law were to be heirs, if people are going to be saved by their obedience to the law, then, then faith is all the promises void. But they can't because the law was never intended to, to bring salvation. The law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if you're, if you're trying to earn God's favor, if you're trying to merit your own salvation, 
through good works and obedience to the law, Paul is saying, you don't actually understand what the law was designed for in the first place anyway, right? You don't, you're, you're missing God's original intention and design for his law. The purpose of the law was not to bring salvation by obeying it. The purpose of the law was to bring wrath and judgment and punishment, right? As it shows us how far short of the perfect standard of glory we actually fall, right? So the, the, the story of, right, like the, 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 the place that the law occupies in the story of God, the, the narrative of God's redemption, Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He establishes humanity as his image bearers to live in it and rule over it. And God kind of gives his creation mandate to humanity. And he says, this is what I want you, mankind, humanity, to do in the world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over every living thing, fish, birds, you know, like subdue and fill and rule the earth. That's your job. Humanity, as my image bearers and my vice regents, your job is to live in the world I created and rule over it on my behalf and, and um, you know, spread the, the, the glory of God all over, you know, all over the, the, the earth. That's your job. Now, humanity promptly rejects that calling. Sins against God, seeks to set himself up as God in place of God, and God then kicks humanity out of the Garden of Eden, out of his presence. Death is introduced into the world. But before he does, there's this lingering promise in Genesis 3.15 where God kind of gives this faint echo of a promise about a Savior that's eventually going to come, right? Uh, God promises there will be a descendant of a human being, a, a man born of a woman who is going to do battle with Satan and sin and death and is going to overcome those evil powers on humanity's behalf. He's going to absorb a painful blow from Satan, but then he is going to deliver a fatal blow to Satan. Right? And in so doing, he's going to secure our victory, secure our salvation forever and ever. That's, that's God's promise to humanity in Genesis 3. What God doesn't say to Adam in Genesis 3 is, since you've sinned against me, I want you to spend the rest of your life trying to obey the law as best as you can in the hopes that eventually your obedience to the law might outweigh your disobedience to the law so that we can kind of act like this little uh, episode never happened. God doesn't say that. God says, wait for a Savior who's going to come and accomplish your salvation and trust in, in Him. I'm going to provide a Messiah who's going to defeat evil and defeat sin and defeat death for you. So that's, the, that's the, the setup that we see in the first three chapters of, of the Bible. Now, fast forward to Moses leading Israel out of Egypt. They come through the waters of the Red Sea. They come to the, to the, uh, the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up onto the mountain. God gives them his law. Well, what's the purpose of the law then? Like, we've already established that humanity is not going to be saved by obeying the law. Humanity is not going to be saved by, by accruing enough good deeds that outweigh their bad deeds. That's not how God set it up. God set it up saying, wait for the Savior who's going to secure your salvation and then trust in Him. So, so the law that's given at Sinai can't be a law, the purpose of which is you obey it so that you can be saved on the basis of your obedience to it. That can't be why the law was created. So why was, was the law then, then created, right? The, 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 the law was given to Israel at Sinai because let's, let's reverse engineer, right? So if, if God's original intention is I'm going to send a Messiah, he's going to accomplish your salvation on your behalf, you trust in him and I'm going to give you salvation freely by grace. If that's the... That's the, God's intention for how to save humanity. Let's reverse engineer how that happens. In order to trust in God's Messiah, we need to first come to the realization that we do in fact need a 
Savior. We need, like humanity, before he's ever going to trust in Jesus, needs to come to the end of himself. He needs to recognize that he is not self-sufficient. He needs to recognize that he needs a, a Savior. As long as we are under the delusion that we're good enough to deserve God's favor, we will never trust in Christ and we will never be reconciled to God. So the first step in engineering our salvation is for God to bring us to the realization that we need him, we need his grace. And that's the purpose of the law. Not to save you, but to show you that you need saving. Not to bring salvation through obedience, but rather to bring wrath. So that when we see the wrath of God that the law brings, we are then compelled out of self-preservation, if nothing else, we're compelled to flee from that wrath. We're compelled to flee from God's wrath into the arms of Jesus who will save us from it. God wants to bring salvation, and eventually he will, but the law brings wrath for the purpose of eventually giving way to the salvation that God is going to bring through, through Christ. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression meaning you know if there's if there's no law then we're still just as sinful as we ever were but we just don't know it because we don't realize what it in fact is that we have transgressed right if there's no speed limit signs on the highway if the speed limit is objectively 55 and the cops know it but there's no sign and you're driving 70 you're still speeding you just don't know it you don't you're not aware that you've transgressed the law because you don't know what the law is so the law brings consciousness of guilt. The law helps us to see where we have trans, transgressed. There's nothing to transgress without the law, so God gives us the law so we can see where we've transgressed and, and, and be driven to Christ to trust him in, in faith. That, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, right? Not works, not circumcision, not the law. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. So God's promise, this promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 was by nature designed to extend beyond Abraham, to all of Abraham's descendants. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, but I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants and I'm going to bless the people that bless you and I'm going to bless the people that bless your descendants Isaac and Jacob and, the, and Jacob's 12 sons and the 12 tribes that came from those 12 sons. The entire nation of Israel. But it doesn't even just stop at the borders of the nation of Israel, right? Not only to the adherent of the law, i.e., you know, a Jewish person in Israel who is carefully keeping all the law of God, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to those who share in the faith of Abraham. So that's beyond the borders of, of Israel. Now to any person who trusts in the mercy of, of God. Right? There's, there's, uh, you've got a person in Israel, law, Sabbath, diet, diet, kosher, dietary regulations, circumcision, all of these laws. And Paul is saying that guy is not necessarily the child of Abraham. The child of Abraham is the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, the one who uh, believes God, believes in his mercy, and God imputes his righteousness to him. So if you obey the law in the Old Testament, you're the most religious, zealous Jewish person that there is, but you don't trust in Christ then you are not a child of Abraham in the truest sense of the word. On the other hand, if you're a Gentile, right? Pork chops three nights a week. And, you know, you eat meat that was boiled in its mother's milk. That's a big one for them for some reason. If you eat meat that was boiled in its mother's milk, you don't follow any of the Jewish dietary laws but you have turned from your sin and trust in Jesus, and then, then Abraham is your father in the realest sense of the word. You are a spiritual descendant of Abraham because you share in the, the faith of, of Abraham. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So Abraham is not just the father of the, the nation of Israel. He's the father of many nations. That's what Abraham means, the father of many nations. comes from Genesis uh, chapter 17. In the presence of God in whom he believed, 
uh, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So now Paul is going to start to like look at and zoom in on and talk about and, and kind of uh, understand the nature of the faith of Abraham and how it worked itself out over the course of the life of Abraham, right? So Abraham was a guy who trusted in God, specifically a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. When, when, God, uh, when God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to bless the world through you, Isaac did not exist. So Abraham's son did not exist. And Paul's saying God called Isaac into existence out of non-existence. And it wasn't just that, I, that Isaac didn't exist. It's that Isaac was like the circumstances out of which Isaac would have come to fruition were dead. I think that's, uh, the, you know, verse... Verse 19, let's, let's flip to the, to the next one here. Verse 19, Paul says, uh, yeah, he can see he did not, his own body was as good as dead. Abraham was 100 years old. He, you know, was not able to have children. He, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The word barrenness here is the, is, means dead. It's the same word as dead, two lines earlier, talking about Abraham's body. And it's the same word as dead that we saw back in 17. So, Sarah was infertile. Abraham was impotent. Like, they, they were not able to have children. They'd been trying for years. They'd been trying for decades. And so, that when you consider Abraham and Sarah's ability to have a child, there is deadness and there is non-existence. And Paul is saying, God is a God who brings life out of death. God is a God who brings existence. The, the doctrine of creation, Right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. God spoke the world into existence out of nothing, non-existence. God didn't make the world out of some material that was there that he just said, I'm going to fashion this into a world. There was nothing. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo means creation out of nothing. There's nothing. Nothing exists except God, and God brings the creation into existence out of non-existence. Death or life from death, existence from non-existence. This is what God does. This is this is God has been doing this ever since the the beginning of of the world. And so Abraham, so Paul says, God made a promise that was not just unlikely; it was impossible. This promise that Abraham would have a son. Abraham said, "My ability to to, to you know impregnate my wife and my wife's ability to conceive a child." is impossible. It does not exist. It is, it is dead. And God says, that's convenient because I happen to be a specialist in bringing life out of death and existence out of non-existence. That's what I, that's what I do. And Abraham responds, in hope, he believed against hope, meaning it's impossible, unlikely. Might as well not even hope for it. Don't waste your time. But Abraham believed anyway. He believed that he would become the father of many nations because he had been told, your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. Countless, countless physical and spiritual descendants that you're going to have, uh, Abraham. Despite the fact that it seems impossible, despite the fact that the circumstances, you know, w- uh, would, would, are, are likely going to weaken your faith, despite the fact that there's no reason to take me at my word and believe. I promise I'm going to do it. Verse 19. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered these unlikely circumstances. The deadness of his body. The deadness of his wife's womb. He trusted in God. Abraham's trust in God was bigger and stronger than Abraham's skepticism about his own circumstances. He hoped and he believed. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We're getting a pretty flowery picture of Abraham here, right? He, I mean, just, you know, he 
hope, he believed against hope, and he did not weaken his faith, and, and no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And he grew strong, and he was fully convinced. A lot of really strong verbs in these, in these couple of verses. Which might, if you're a Christian reading these verses, you might think, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that this, this is um, painting a picture of Abraham that is more discouraging than encouraging because I don't always feel like I have it in me to hope against hope. I don't always feel, sometimes I do feel like my faith is weak. Sometimes I do feel like unbelief makes me waver. Sometimes I do doubt the promise of God. Sometimes my faith is not as strong as I want it to be. Sometimes I'm not entirely fully convinced that God can do what he has promised. And so how can I look to Abraham? If I look to Abraham, it's, I, I, sometimes I feel discouraged that Abraham, there was something qualitatively better about his faith than mine. Well, I've got good news for you. Let's take a quick look at Abraham's life and put these verses into perspective. So, Genesis 12, promise from God. Go from your country. I will show you the land that I'm going to take you to. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. So big, sweeping promise from God in Genesis 12. What happens immediately thereafter in the latter half of Genesis chapter 12? Abraham sells his own wife like property into sexual slavery to save his own skin. So not a great start, Abraham. If he, I mean, so like trusting, believing, like Abraham started like you know, not, not great right out, of the, right out of the gate. Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise. Abraham, uh, look toward heaven and look at the stars. If you are able to number them, your offspring will be like that. Your reward will be very great. So we've got promise, failure. Promise. What happens in Genesis 16? Another, like swing and a miss number two, right? Chapter 16, Abraham commits adultery, sleeps with his servant because he thinks that God can't keep his promise. God's not going to give him a son, so he's going to help God out by, by you know, uh, sleeping with another person besides his wife, a move that, by the way, was not without drama for the, for the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament and today. The, the, the conflict that we see on the news in the Middle East today can be traced back to this decision from Abraham to, to not trust the promise of God and wait for God to provide offspring through Sarah, but rather to, to do it himself with Sarah's servant, Hagar. So, promise, failure. Promise, failure. Round three, Genesis 17. Another promise from God, right? Abraham, you'll be the father of nations. I'll make you fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and between your offspring and their generations. And I will be your God. And I will give to you offspring. And I'll give you land. Uh, I'll give you offspring in the land of your sojournings. Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. So now this is the third time. So promise failure. Promise failure. Promise number three. Surely Abraham's going to get it this time. Surely he's going to be faithful from this moment forward. In Genesis 20, he does the same thing that he did in Genesis 12. He sells his wife again to another person into slavery to save his own skin. Promise failure one, two, three times. Okay, so now God is probably going to then give up because Abraham has blown it time and time again. New sins, different sins, same old sins, repeated again. God is finally going to, to get, get tired of this. No, in Genesis 21, God finally then keeps his promise. Sarah finally gets pregnant. Isaac is finally born. And then finally, after all of these failures, time and time again, in Genesis 22, Abraham finally Man, little engine that could. He finally puts up a W and finally, you know, uh, does something right. God says to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. And instead of arguing, instead of running, instead of disobeying, 
Abraham believes God. His faith grows strong. He does not waver concerning the promise of God, but he grows strong in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham takes his son, Isaac, up a mountain. He binds him with rope. He lays him on an altar, and he is getting ready to kill his only son. God says, kill Isaac. And Abraham's got to be thinking, this is absurd. Like, we have been through it for years and for decades, and you finally give us a child against all odds, against all hope. You finally give us a child, and now the first thing you tell us to do is to murder that child. That is counterproductive to the plan that we had, to the, the, the vision that you gave us. And yet, Isaac ta- uh, yet Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, raises the knife. He's getting ready to sacrifice his own son. God stops him and says, now I know that you love me and that you trust me. It's this huge, epic, incredible display of faith and bravery that comes after just a huge litany of failure and unbelief. So when Paul says that Abraham's faith never wavered, in verse 20, when he says that Abraham believed against all hope in 18, when he says he was fully convinced in 21 that God was able to do, what that can't mean a cursory glance at Abraham's life shows us that, that, what that what that cannot mean is that Abraham never, and then by extension, Christians must never have doubts, struggles, fears, concerns. What it cannot mean is that Abraham was and Christians are expected to be morally perfect, right? That they're never going to, to sin, they're never going to fail. That can't be what Paul is saying here. Rather, it means that when Abraham sinned, he repented. Verses 18 to 20, if you read them and you envision in your brain a morally perfect, sinless life, then, you, then you're not thinking of Abraham because he didn't do that. Instead, what this is describing is the life of a person who Not that he never sins, it's when he sins, he repents. And when he repents, he keeps on going, and he keeps on persevering, and he keeps on fighting against sin, right? When he finds himself turning away from the promises of God and doubting the promises of God and looking to himself instead of to the promises of God, he does the hard work of pulling against that and looking to God's promises again, even though he has found it difficult to do so. Friends, if you're... If your, understanding, if, if, if your understanding of the Christian life is that it is one of moral perfection, where you never fail, never doubt, you're always perfect all the time, that was not the life of Abraham. It was not the life of Moses. It was not the life of David. It was not the life of Elijah. It was not the life of John the Baptist. It was not the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's, that's not going to be your life. The Christian life is not a life of moral perfection. The Christian life is a life of ongoing, persistent repentance. When you sin, you turn from it. You confess it. You receive God's grace for it. You fight against it and you press on, persevering in repentance, in faith. That's the Christian life. It's not that we never fail. It's that when we fail, we repent. And verse 21 is key because that gives us some insight into Abraham's heart in that moment with Isaac, right? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But when, when Abraham is taking Isaac up the mountain, God already had done what he had promised. God promised a child, he'd given him a child. Great. But then he says you have to kill that child and offer him as, as a sacrifice. So what's Abraham thinking in that moment? When they're walking up the mountain to the altar, Isaac asks his father, he says, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And God respond, or Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. So, perhaps Abraham trusted that God would 
provide a lamb to offer up, that, that God would, like what actually happened in the last moment, intervene and say, please don't sacrifice Isaac, but instead sacrifice this other animal instead. Or Hebrews 19 gives us some additional insight into the, the mind of Abraham. It says that Abraham was willing to kill Isaac because he knew that even if he did, God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham, who knows what he was thinking in that moment, but he was either thinking, God's probably not going to make me kill Isaac because he's going to give me an animal instead, or he's thinking, God probably will make me kill Isaac, and I'm going to do it. And if I do, God is so powerful that he can bring Isaac back from, from the dead and still keep his promises in that, in that way. Verse 22, it says, That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That, right, that dogged, persistent hope against hope, that is why Abraham's trusting in God resulted in God imputing his righteousness to Abraham. So that's the, that's the paradigm that Abraham sets up for us. Sinful human being trusts in God, trusts in his mercy, which results in God imputing his righteousness to that person so that that person can be justified and accepted into the presence of God. And it's particularly beautiful and it's particularly encouraging because it's not just about Abraham, it's also about us. Verse 23, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So that reality of trusting in the mercy of God and then having the righteousness that God requires imputed to you, given to you freely by grace, that is not something that was just available to Abraham. That was for all of us. You can trust in Jesus and, and turn from your sin and look to Jesus in faith. And when you do, God will impute Jesus' righteousness to you. And you can be saved for all of eternity with the assurance of knowing that you will be in God's presence forever. You can stand before God and say with Abraham, I'm not standing on my own. I'm not appealing to my own works. I'm not appealing to my accomplishments. I'm not appealing to my righteousness. I trust in Christ. I'm going to give my sin to Christ. And all of the punishment that comes with it is his. I'm going to receive Christ's righteousness and all of the reward that comes with it. Abraham believed God and it was credited and imputed to him as righteousness and we can trust in Christ and it will be imputed and credited to us as righteousness. If you are here this morning weighed down by sin or suffering or guilt or, or shame, feeling like you can't measure up, feeling like you can't be righteous enough, feeling like the demands and expectations that are on you are too heavy. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be righteous enough. You can receive salvation freely from God as an act of His grace. Because Jesus earned it for you. And verse 25 shows us how Jesus earned it for you. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered, raised, crucified, resurrected. The reason why we can trust in Jesus and receive salvation from Jesus is because Jesus died as a sacrifice of atonement for us. Jesus lived the perfect life that we were called to live. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly, the law that we could not keep, the law that for our purposes only serves to bring wrath. Jesus fulfilled that law perfectly. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled the spirit and the heart of every law that, G, that, that God has ever given. But instead of then receiving the, the reward that he deserved, Jesus was delivered up 
for our trespasses, betrayed into the hands of sinful men, tried for crimes he did not commit, beaten, brutalized, forced to carry his cross to his own execution site, nailed to it, suspended in midair, left to die a horrible death, as he bore the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus was treated as if he had committed every sin that every person would ever sin. And he was crushed under the weight of the wrath of God. And he was then raised for our justification. Just when it seemed that all had been lost. Jesus' corpse is lying in a grave, cold on a stone slab, and it looks like sin has won. It looks like Satan has won. It looks like death has won. Jesus gets up out of the grave. His body, literally, bodily, physically, he's resurrected from the dead. He's defeated death. He asserts his lordship over death, right? Jesus' resurrection proclaims publicly to the entire universe for all of eternity that he is king, he is lord. Maybe up until that moment, death was on top of the food chain, but now Jesus has unseated death. Jesus is on top of the food chain. Jesus is the king. Jesus is alive. He is worshiped forever with glory and honor. And now, because he's alive, right, Jesus can save anyone that he wants to. He's the king, right? And when Jesus was raised in newness of life, that also gives us, as the people that trust in him, newness of life. Jesus gives us new life. He gives us power over sin. He gives us his Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us and lead us and and keep us. Jesus died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin and satisfy the wrath of God that you deserve. And Jesus was resurrected to give you new life so that you can be with him and walk with him and glorify him from this moment forward. Friends, the the good news of the gospel is that salvation does not come through obedience to the law. It comes through faith. We turn from our sin. We trust in Christ. He imputes his righteousness to us so that we can be received into his presence to live with him forever. Let's be a people who remember that and proclaim it and walk in light of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation through good works because we couldn't even if we tried. We thank you that we can receive salvation freely from you by grace just by trusting in the person of Christ. And we pray that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father, Abraham. Help us to trust you, receive your grace, and enjoy your salvation together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.